0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This piece was brought to you by Roberta's. Roberta'spizza.com
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. <laughs>
3: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys. It's May 7th. This is our second live show of the day at 6 p.m. The reason? Our favorite beer writer, Jeff Alworth, is in from Portland, Oregon, and he's got his new book out, The Widmer Way. So, Jeff Alworth, welcome to the show, man. If you don't know him, it's Bravana Blog. Uh, we read him. My buddies, uh, Brett from Wild East Brewing and Jeff Lyons from Kagan Lanton Brewing are here to join us. Brett, what did you say? That Jeff is a, he's a smart writer?
1: course he is I've been, <laughs> I've been actually
3: i've been following jeff on on uh on twitter for a really long time yeah and i i read your articles and we had you on a couple years ago when your beer bible book came out so jeff th- thanks for reaching out to us um yeah h- how's it going man you're you're touring you're at the strand bookstore last night what what's it been like launching another book um that's also kind of a narrative of the Wid- widmer brothers
4: you know it's, it's in my hometown Uh, of portland oregon most of the books that i release are not relevant to the city and so i've kind of gotten not such a big you know exciting uh welcome so for the first time i have a a book about the city of portland and i've gotten a really nice reception there and that's been really cool so i've enjoyed that
3: so let's talk about you know why did you write a book about the widmer and what were the widmer brothers and what do they represent to portland oregon brewing scene
4: that's a lot of questions.
3: <laughs> well, you can read the book, but... Yeah, that's
4: right. I want to hear it in your own words. Well, let's, let's take the last one first. Um, you asked, like, why do you call it Beer this? How did this all happen? And, you know, there's... Uh, within, within, I think, a, a span of two years, we had four breweries open between 1984 and 1986. And one of those breweries was the McMinnimans and they had a chain, so they had probably a few... A kind of a few outlets. So... Right off the gate, we had a, a kind of an explosion of breweries in Portland, which we actually had in 1979, 1980, the first defunct craft brewery opened. So we had some experience with that uh, in terms of you know this explosion of beer, but Weizen was this kind of the killer app that really helped transform the city from a, a place where there were these little breweries making beer nobody understood or wanted to... Uh, people identifying a beer, this light, weedy, familiar-smelling thing. Even though they didn't know what craft beer was, you smell it. It smells like wheat and a little citrus. It seems completely familiar. And it convinced uh, a number of people to begin drinking beer, and it became kind of the gateway beer in... Portland, and so by the early 1990s, there were a number of breweries there, and it, it was so widespread that people started calling it uh, Birvana. You know, uh, it's, it's,
3: it's funny now that when we think about so many breweries opening with a really good IPA, a hazy IPA, but it was Hefeweizen that put Portland and Widmer on on the map.
4: Yeah, and you know, th- this was the first haze craze. I can't, I can't impress how popular this beer was. Actually, I can. I can put some numbers on it. By the time they bottled, uh, ten ten years after they opened the brewery, they were making sixty eight thousand barrels of beer on draft, all on draft, and almost all of that was sold in Washington, Oregon. So uh, that's a pretty cosmic amount of beer for that period of time, uh, and and the market penetration was just uh, remarkable.
3: So Jeff, these I'm glad there was one guy you're going to bring from a, a beer marketer's insight that. I, I, it's okay that he's not here because I didn't want to go too deep into data, but I want to talk more about the story. From reading your book, these two brothers, Woodmer brothers seem like remarkable people. I mean, old school values, their dad helping them figure out how to rework some dairy equipment. Yeah. I mean, how did they they go from that to six, eight thousand barrels (laughs) a Hefeweizen?
4: Well, they got lucky. I mean, they, that wasn't the plan. They, the the plan was to brew alt beer. So, uh, Kurt and Rob had relatives in Dusseldorf, And they thought, you know, in 1984, the Pacific Northwest had a number of regional breweries. They had uh, Blitzweinhardt, which was in Portland. There was Rainier. There was Olympia. There was Lucky Lager in Vancouver. Um, There was uh, Heidelberg. I think that was in Tacoma. And what those beers made were Olympia and Henry Weinhardt's and Rainier. So when you launched a brewery, you sold one beer, right? That was what you did. And so their idea was, we'll do alt beer, this brown ale from Dusseldorf that's very hoppy. This seems like a good idea. And so Kurt went to Uruga in Dusseldorf and spent uh, several days there learning how to brew the beer from Josef Schnitzler. He got their yeast strain, brought that back. They optimized the brewery. And it was, you know, it, it, it really was, got the yeast strain. So we know Uruga. It's they've got the the sticker, the doppel
3: yeah. these gray amber ales they really got the yeast strain from Urqa in Dusseldorf.
4: Yeah, to Herr, me that's exciting. It's very exciting. Herr Schnitzler gave it to him and it was uh, they had kind of a meeting of the minds. They really uh, they liked each other. Uh, Herr Schnitzler was very fascinated that this American this young American guy was coming over there to brew alt beer and he's like, what's your brewery like and. Kurt said, Well, we don't really have a brewery, but it's going to look like this. And, uh, you know, he just found it very curious and kind of charming. Um, but, but, but the other. Brett,
3: Brett or, we have two brewers here from New York uh, Brett from Wild East and uh, Jeff from uh, Keg and Would you guys make an Alt beer? Can you imagine someone making it in the 80s?
1: I would absolutely make it, and I, but I cannot imagine somebody making it in the 80s.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty great story and a pretty great leap back then. But yeah, absolutely 100% now. Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, it, it it was not popular then. <laughs> it,
5: it wouldn't be now. But uh, yeah, yeah, right. exactly. that's one you make for yourself, and yeah. you know, it's a, fellow, it's brewers. a brewer's beer.
4: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, it was a uh, uh, an impressive beer. It had uh, the first batch they made had seventy five IBUs. They sent it over to the brewers at uh, Blitz Weinhardt and said, because I had no way to gauge how bitter it was uh and said well you guys check this out and so on the qt they ran the labs and came back and apparently the guy that ran the lab said what the hell is this what are you guys brewing this i've never seen anything like this this is crazy this is off the charts um so they had to dial that back so you just
3: just demystify this whole thing i always thought oregon and portland beer scene started with west coast northwest pacific northwest ipas high ibu so this this wasn't then
4: Yeah, I mean, it took a while, you know, Uh, we came to hops kind of gradually over time. Um, Two of the earlier popular beers were Full Sail's Amber Ale and uh, McTarnahan's Amber Ale, and both of those had quite a bit of hop character, and they were really characteristic uh, West Coast hopping, a lot of of, uh, Cascade character. So those beers existed, but, you know, this is a, a story about the Widmers, too. Nobody had any idea what beers were going to sell, and they all had this idea, well, we'll sell one flagship, and it'll be one kind, so Ken, Ken Grossman had pale ale, so they weren't going to make pale ale. They were going to try something else. In fact, Rob and Kurt went down to Chico to check out what Ken was doing when they started their, their brewery, and he was a big inspiration, I think, for so many of the early brewers that got started at that, that era.
3: It's great, and you brought some other guys with you, so... Um... Uh, Steven, Stephen, introduce yourself and also your book PR guy.
6: <laughs> yeah, so I'm Stephen with Widmer Brothers, the brand manager. Um, and I'm he, he brought beer. I brought beer. That's really my main goal here. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> actually, I've, I've, this is my first Widmer, and it's pretty good. What are we drinking? You're drinking the original
6: American Hefeweizen. Yeah. So, this is the beer that... It's not the first beer we brewed. That was alt, but it's the beer that put us on the map.
4: This beer... This beer saved the brewery. Uh, they were about to go bankrupt with that alt beer. And this was the, actually a filtered version of this was the second beer they brewed. And, so what, uh, what year was this? This, this is, is 19... 1985. They released their first alt beer. And within a few months, they like actually got a little bit of media exposure. And, and at first, people were kind of excited to try the beer. But then it was this quite bitter, dark thing that no one had any kind of relationship to. And so Kurt said, well, you know, we made we did an, an when we were doing homebrew we did this wheat beer, let's try that. And uh that that became Weizen and then later on a local pub asked them to do a third beer and they didn't have a third beer so they just gave them a an unfiltered keg uh which was really nice for them because the filter that they had was terrible and it would take hours to to do and this was a, a very kind of filter heavy beer and so when they when it started to sell well they were so delighted to be able to just not filter it
3: quick quick to our brewers in the room so what what would it be like you know what what kind of filter do you think they had back then and and this challenges these guys must have faced in, in the 1980s
1: i don't know and as a brewer a modern brewer on the east coast we don't really do use filters but i bet you there was a shit ton of sorry uh a lot of do pickup dissolved oxygen pickup and it was probably not very shelf stable
3: Good. And the other guy here, uh, the book PR guy, Kyle, introduce yourself. Come on.
4: Yeah, I'm Kyle Mallory. I'm just here basically because I emailed you and got Jeff on the show. We're excited to be here.
3: It's also your birthday, isn't it? It's my birthday. I'm the big 3-9. One away <laughs> from, the, from the lamentable 40.
4: The, the warranty's still active for one more year. That's what Jeff said, yeah. <laughs> well, happy birthday, man. Cheers. Well,
3: Cheers. It, and for Jeff, you know, it's like uh, uh, this 1980s in, in Oregon. It seems like ancient times now. I mean, we, yeah, I don't really get... There were a couple books out a few years ago. There was The Audacity of Hops that Tom Acatelli wrote. Um, from New York, Steve Hindi wrote a pretty good book about the craft beer revolution. Yeah. It, it, are there any other stories about these, these early days of, of craft beer in America?
4: Uh, Ken Grossman uh, wrote his story, and that was a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a few of them out there. Uh, Jim Cook wrote his, his story. But each one is kind of unique. So one of the things that was curious and compelling for me when I wrote this book was that it's not only the story of the Widmer brothers, but also kind of the. it's impossible to separate it from the city. Every brewery, beer is local, right? So all breweries exist in a context of the place they're made. And so the Widmer story is the story of beer getting started in in the Pacific Northwest and, and particularly in Portland and it's different than it was. All these other stories are slightly different. They all have different valences and kind of characters. So it's, uh, you know, it's the story of Portland. It's the story of Widmer Brothers. And that was fun for me.
3: One thing I liked about the book is you, you really talked about the Portland character. When I think of Portland, I think of fancy, you know, very, uh, I would say, elite and, you know, esoteric. <laughs> but it wasn't the case back then, was it?
4: It's still not the case. That That's an interesting perspective. It is a really... <laughs> Uh, blue-collar town. I mean, in the in uh, both World Wars, it was a shipbuilding town. And we were building, in World War II, we were building a 1,000 ships uh, that were supplying the Allies. And this brought a ton of people into the city to help build these ships. And those people continued after the shipbuilding to work in different trades around the city. It's, it's a really industrial, working-class city. When I arrived in the 1980s, Basically, there, it was a totally flat culture, class-wise, and people would joke like you would wear your good jeans to the the best r- uh, restaurants in town, and that was considered like appropriate. You could get into any restaurant in jeans; they just had to be your good jeans. So, and that there's actually still a fair amount of that quality left in Portland. So, and they're very much like that. Jeff Lyons, I,
5: I always think of. Like a bohemian kind of thing. I don't know. I, I have like probably a 25 year relationship with the Dandy Warhols, which is sort of my yeah. my biggest touch point with with the city. So I don't know. The beer came after that. So it's <laughs> it's, it's it shades beyond that,
4: right? We, I mean, the thing, the, the the cool thing about Portland is it's always been the cheapest big West Coast city. So if you were if you wanted to start a band or you wanted to start a brewery or you wanted to start a coffee roastery. You could find cheaper rent in Portland, and you could find a cheaper place to live in Portland than anywhere else, so your costs were lower. One of the things that Portland is most famous for right now is its amazing food scene, and it's fueled by chefs who can afford to open their own restaurants, you know, years or decades earlier than they would if they were in a more expensive city. And all of that stuff, the, what you think of as posh is really this DIY thing that kind of permeates all categories of food and beverage, and, you know, it's it's what has fueled portland for the last 30 40 years
3: i mean a shout out to, to people that i know from portland i'm lucky that a few brewers have come over like mike from the commons yeah um g- gigantic brewing yeah uh, did you have
4: do you have van or ben? van came on oh yeah. <laughs> that's great he's a character and, uh, talk we were, about a character we were
3: lucky we had christian de benedetti from wolves and people he lived Absolutely. in the city for a while yeah I, but otherwise i don't i really haven't had a lot of contact with with portland Our portland beers is, are you guys really drinking all the beers? We're in, drinking in, in all the Oregon? beers, Oregon. <laughs>
4: w- w- before we got started, we said, "Have you ever left New York?" And you're like, "No. Why would I leave New York?" Portlanders are kind of like that, right? <laughs> so that's what our beer is that way too. We drink it all. So yeah, I, uh, for a lot of years as a beer writer, I would talk to other people, and you know, we had this idea. We were already calling our beer our city, Bavanna, and I would be like, "Of course we have the best beer," but because it never left, nobody believed me, and it's only been in the last five years or so that. People have started to kind of believe that we actually have good beer and, and come visit and see what we've got going on.
3: So, as as a book, Jeff, how, how
4: did you get this book deal? Why did you write this story? Well, this book actually came about because I was considering doing some consulting for, uh, work, and I wanted to talk to somebody about how how would I approach breweries to help them tell their own stories because that's what I do is I help uh, I tell brewery stories in my writing. And so I called up Rob Widmer, who is A guy who has a brewery and a a person I really respect. And and he said, Yeah, come on down, we'll talk about it. And we went down and I said, How, you know, and I pitched this idea to him and I said, Would would that be anything that you would be interested in as a brewery? Is there anything for me if I pursued that? And he said, uh, We're five minutes into the conversation and he says, Oh, what's Widmer's story? And we spent the next hour talking about what I thought Widmer's story was. And then a, a couple of weeks or a month later, uh, I got a call from the brewery and they said, would you be willing to write our biography? (laughs) And, uh, that's, so that's how that book came about. And it was, uh, it was, it was a real pleasure to work with the brewery. And, and those guys are kind of special people. They're very, they're very old Portland in that they're very, um, not posh. I don't think either one of them has ever been caught dead in a suit. Uh, and you know, they're working class guys who built a brewery.
3: Yeah. Well, you guys, you know, you're, you're part of the team here. You got to, PR guy, you know, the the book launcher at the Strand. What else are you guys doing uh, to promote the book?
1: Yeah, we're we're meeting with uh, several writers uh, both today and
4: tomorrow. We're going to a lot of local, we're going to Upright Brew House, Um, we're going to As Is, uh, we're going to Randolph Nolita, which is right by our hotel, and meeting with various New York writers um, to get the word out about both the brand, Woodman Brothers, and Jeff's great book.
3: Great. And Steven, you're along for the ride. <laughs> yeah,
6: I'm here to drink for sure.
4: Yeah.
3: And you guys, Jeff and Brett, uh, you know, you guys are making great beer here in New York. Do, 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 what do you feel like that you can learn from the Oregon craft beer story? I mean, I mean, is there anything to learn from that? Go ahead. Jeff, go on.
5: <laughs> I think I think the name of the game for all of us is learning, period, across the board all, all the time. I think when you stop, hang it up. Um, yeah, I, I am glad that you invited us here so that we could, you know, be, be part of this and, and, and hear, hear what Jeff has to say. Um, I don't know specifically what we could learn, but I, you know, it's loads and loads. I'm positive of it.
4: I think one of the things about any beer scene, any city's beer scene is if you've got a bunch of breweries that are doing good work and communicating with each other. You have this thing that happened in Portland and we're seeing it happen in Chicago, especially it's happened recently. We saw it finally happen in San Francisco and I'm not sure when it happened in New York, but it's it's certainly happened here as well, where the breweries see what other people are doing so they understand what the best cuz brewers they talk to each other and they admire each other's beer and then they ask like that was an amazing thing, how did you do that? And techniques get spread around and the quality goes up because they're all tasting each other's beers. And a lot of times they'll do it in informal and sometimes even formal ways and do tastes, you know, tasting together. The collaborations that are constant in the industry are a way for breweries to share information and share techniques and work with a brewery that maybe not doesn't make beer the same way they do. And so, if you start to have a good brewing scene in a city, it will the the learning curve is very fast and very sharp, and all of a sudden the quality across the board goes up and the creativity goes up, and everybody like it's just it's just good times. And we're seeing that happen in city across city. I think Portland was a little bit you know the West Coast was early on that, but everyone else is totally caught up with us.
3: Great, Um, Stephen. You poured a second beer for us. Give us a quick shout-out on this beer, please.
6: Yeah, so this is Juicy Sunrise IPA. It's the newest one we launched. Um, it was a beer that we put on tap at our pub. It did extremely well every time we put it on tap. would run out of kegs, um, so we decided to scale up. So Widmer, ke- Widmer. Widmer, yep. How do you pronounce it? Woodmere. <laughs> It's uh, a good
3: question. It's a
6: great question. It depends on who you ask. But if you ask Kurt and Rob, it's Widmer Brothers.
4: Everybody in Portland says Widmer. Yeah. Everybody. And in See, fact, Rob and Kurt have I read have the book, the, guys. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They've both been corrected. People say, oh, no, no, it's Widmere. And they have to say, um, yeah, it's, I, I made the beer. I, I know how my name's pronounced. Cool. Well, we're going to take a short <laughs> break.
3: Uh, we'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank uh-huh.
5: My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper awesome place.
3: Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Thank you, Roberta's Pizza. We love being here. The Heritage Radio Network studio is in the back of Roberta's Pizza. So come in any Tuesday, 5 o'clock. You can see us hanging out and uh, share a beer with us. So, Jeff Allworth's
4: book, The Widmer
3: Way. <laughs> Is it Widmer or Widmere?
4: <laughs> in Portland, everybody says Widmere, and they're wrong. It's Widmer. <laughs> Wait, it's it's weird. I mean, it's W-I-D-M-E-R. It's it doesn't actually look like Widmere. But, um, you know, when people start pronouncing something away, then everybody does. And so, it's Widmere in Portland. But the poor brothers always try to correct people.
3: So, you know, I think you've... You're onto something. I'm really glad I read the book. For me, I didn't really know a lot about the Portland, Oregon beer scene. I had a lot of mis- misconceptions about what Portland was like. So I'd like to go a little deeper into the culture of Oregon craft beer because it seems that a lot of things happened there in the 80s that now is only happening in, in, in New York State. Um, two-tier systems. So when these guys started out, they were making beer, selling it, what, what did they do? They changed some laws. They were, they were driving around a Dotson pickup truck yeah. to sell beer to bars.
4: It's a fascinating story. So beer uh, uh, laws are an enormous story in any beer city, any beer country. And um, they're not very exciting, so we don't really hear about them. But it's almost always the case that if it's a crappy culture or a really vibrant culture, you can trace that back to beer laws. And in Portland, what happened was um, it was really fascinating. In the 1980s, there were 12 distributors in Portland and they were selling something like 15 different beers. So almost every, if you had a brewery, you had your own distributor and the beer. And and so the little guys came online and nobody knew how to handle that. So they decided they, they got together and the beer beer distributor uh, lobbyist was the most powerful person in the state uh, at the time. And they came up with an idea. It was like, well, you can, You can do one, there's two paths. You can either have your own brewery uh, where you sell your beer from your brewery, but if you do that, you can't distribute it yourself. Or you can self-distribute it, but if you do that, you can't have your own pub. You can't sell it out of your own brewery. And that way, the distributors felt like it would uh, empower them to continue to sell beer with these little guys and get in on the market.
3: But still, in that sense, Oregon was a little ahead of the curve with a two-tier system.
4: By the, yeah, the, it was amazing. So the weird, they had weird antiquated laws that were post-prohibition that were going to screw the brewers just like they did in every state. And in, in 1984 and 85, the brewers went down to Salem, uh, Oregon's capital, Salem. and uh, That's where the witch trial was? <laughs> <laughs> Different state. Originally, yeah, probably. Um, and got that law through within a year. So by 1985 uh, that the brew it was called the brew pub law had passed and it allowed, it was, it opened the doors for craft brewers. And most of the craft brewers in Oregon went for the brew pub model. And in fact, tap rooms are giant everywhere in the world. In Portland, they're still kind of rare Portlanders. If you go into a place and you can't buy food, it's considered a weird thing. And so most people want to have food. And so there's a restaurant component is usually, uh, included in the Portland thing. The Widmers chose the other way. They went. They did not have room for a pub, and they didn't have the money to buy a pub, so they started to self-distribute, and that turned out to be a really big advantage for them because there were all these pubs in the city that they could take their beer to, and they could. They were actually the guys who were selling the beer. They would walk in, and they like, "I'm Robin. I'm I'm Kurt, and here's our beer." And that was a big sales uh, bonus. For so, them. In,
3: in your book, you talk about that this this pub culture, tavern culture. Um That seems like the way we want to live. It seems like the way people lived in England and Germany. but So you're saying that Portland never lost that culture.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Portland was a little bit of a laboratory for urban planning. And uh, in the 1960s and 70s, when most cities were suburbanizing, Portland was working really hard to keep its intact neighborhoods intact. And uh, when you drive around, especially the east side of the city, there's all these little neighborhoods a lot like New York, in fact, where you have little centers, and in those centers you had things like hardware stores and movie theaters and taverns, all independent and all ready to accept somebody coming in and selling beer. And, it, and uh, in 1985, 23% of the beer in Oregon was sold on draft, which was an incredibly high percentage at the time. Which is why Curtin and Rob thought, "Well, this is if we sell on draft and you know drive our kegs around in this old Datsun." we may actually find enough accounts to keep afloat. Although there was another brewery at the time that was opening up and they both thought we're doomed. There's no way the city can have two
0: breweries. (laughs) (laughs) We'll definitely
4: fail.
3: Well, quick, uh, so this beer we're drinking, we had that really classic, uh, Widmer Hefeweizen, which is my first time ever having it. and It is the kind of the style that I want to drink right now. Yeah. Um, and you just poured something sour,
1: Brett. Uh, yeah so this is uh this is furtherance this is uh a collaboration beer between the brewery that i uh work for uh fifth hammer uh and the brewery that i'm opening wild east um yeah we uh sort of collaborated with with ourselves um <laughs> and the... yeah i mean uh D- chris and david mary uh who who own uh Fifth Hammer are, are re- really good friends of mine, and and they employ me to make beer for them, and um, we we got together to get to get a beer out there, um, just to sort of help get so our name out this? there. What is this? It's like it's like funky and it's sour. A bre- it's a Brett saison, um, but we use, we use IPA hops. We use Mosaic and Belma, so we made essentially we made a juicy Brett
3: saison.
4: Wait, what was that second hop?
3: Belma.
1: Belma. What? <laughs> you
4: I've never know? heard like of you. Belma.
3: Belma. Yeah. Do you guys know what Belma is as a hop?
1: Uh. Go ahead. Jeff used to work in a homebrew shop. He would know these things.
3: <laughs> yeah, J- Jeff Lyons, Keg and Lern, the quiet guy, is probably one of the most knowledgeable <laughs> brewers in New York City. So. I,
5: I, I, Actually, it's sort of within the main homebrew group that I'm a part of, the Brooklyn Bruisers, um, sort of a Greenpoint-centric group. Uh, for some reason or other, I made maybe two or three beers with Belma in it, uh, maybe four or five years ago. And to this day, they're like... Jeff knows about Belma. He brews with Belma. He's the Sorry. Belma man. It's, it's 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 stuck to me. I can't can't shake it. Is no, it an American really cool. hop? I uh, believe so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Pacific yeah, yeah. Northwest, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a, got a grape thing. Some people say like blueberries. There's mm. all sorts of different fruits that get yeah. thrown at it, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. But so on that note, we you know that from the hefeweizen to the, this like
3: sour funky bread Brett saison. What do you see now, Jeff? I want to jump to your blog because your Bravana blog, I do read it. I like it. Thank you. Um, you know,
4: how can you explain beers like this? You know, Brett, funky, sour. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a classic evolution, right? The, the thing is, in that early era when Kurt and Rob got started, they were imitating European brewers. So Kurt and Rob thought they would make alt beer. So they went to Germany to learn how to make alt beer. Uh, most. American breweries were imitating uh u k brewers, and you know the first decade America was learning how to brew it didn't most of the people who were making these styles had never even tasted them in the native country that they were brewing and they they were told what the beer was like, and then they kind of tried to make it based on cobbling together an idea of what that beer was but then eventually uh, people started traveling and they started uh, talking to brewers from Europe and they started having their minds expanded, and they started learning how those beers were made. And so, you know, America is a great country of synthesis. We, we bring stuff in. Yeah, it's the melting pot, and that, that works with culture too. So we take the culture from other places. Uh, these, you know, the the wild beers have always been brewed everywhere, but the tradition was really remained alive mostly in Belgium. So people would go to Belgium and learn how to make these beers from Belgians and then bring them back and say things like, you know, this, this Bretonamiacese strain that I'm using produces a really strong stone fruit flavor. Uh, this hop, this American hop that I know, also has a really strong stone flute, fruit flavor. What if we, uh, what if we use that IPA hopping technique and combine it with that Brettanomyces? That would be cool, right? And then we're off to the races.
3: That, that's what you did, Brett. Precisely what we did. Yeah. <laughs> In
1: fact, we did the same the same hopping schedule that we would do for an IPA. We we um, had no bittering hops. We had no. We had no hops throughout the boil at all. We we brought the, the uh, at fifth hammer we usually bring our our, um, our whirlpool temperature down to about 165 170 degrees, and then we add our hops for our IPAs. That's the typical way that mm-hmm. we do it, and that's exactly what we do with this Brett's. And, and
3: Jeff Alworth knew that just from the smell.
2: right? <laughs> 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 and then
3: Jeff Lyons, you're gonna pour us one of your beers in, in a few minutes, but this is kind of where we want to go with this. I mean, to, to me, like you know, Jeff Alworth, you're you're a resource. And, you know, I look to England. There's some writers like Pete Brown and guys like Ron Pattinson doing these historical recipes. And I, I like writing. And I, I, I think that I really respect that, that you're writing about beer in a way that uh, those of us in the room like reading. So thank well, you. Well, thank
4: you. I appreciate that. It's a, it's a wonderful topic to cover.
3: But so jumping it, there was an article that came out, I think it was last year that you wrote. It, it was a. We're gonna step aside. It's uh, what came first, was it bread or beer? But it was also about the archaeologists who were studying. We hear about Sumerians. I mean, who wants to talk about how beer started? I can tell you. Oh yeah, there was a there was a, a bear in the forest, and he found a, there was some honey with water and wild yeast, and he got drunk on it. I mean, really, these origin stories are ridiculous. Right. And I have never really read anything that that seemed like solidly accurate until I read your article about what came first, bread or beer.
4: Yeah, well, when I... I've uh,
3: wanted to talk about this for five years. <laughs> oh, that's so
4: fantastic. It's a great topic. When I wrote the Beer Bible, that debate had had, had been out there. There's a guy called Braidwood. I can't remember his first name. And he first proposed this in the 50s. He said, what came first, bread or, bread or beer? And it just always struck me as absurd that beer would have come first because you know humans would have been compelled by, by nutrition to want to do bread first. So I, I never really took it that seriously. And, and it looked co-emergent when if you go back to the Sumerians, it's, they're, they're making bread and beer, so it's a little bit difficult to tell. But archaeology... So like
3: thousands of years ago.
4: Right. So we're talking like, uh, you know, four or 5,000 BC when uh, the Fertile Crescent starts civilizing. But if you go back before that, a few thousand years, if you go back to 10,000 BC, there's this place called Gobekli Tepe, which is in what's now uh, Turkey. So this is long, long, long before anybody was planning to settle down and grow grain. And the site, so the site is not houses, which is what you typically find with civilization. It's this feasting site. So it's a religious site. And they found residue of beer, right? So what's this all about? Why is there beer here? What is this feasting site? What's happening? Well, it actually kind of makes sense, right? You're The first thing that you come together to do is not for sustenance because you've already figured that out you've been living for a hundred thousand years as a humanoid (laughs) you know in in europe like homo sapiens go back a hundred thousand years you've figured out how to survive what's what's developing is religion communal culture like all these things coming together and what does better for Religion and communal culture than beer, right? It helps you touch God. I mean, even in the Sumerians, it's all a very religious experience because, you know, it lightens the spirit, it raises the, you know, the the mood, but also it brings people together and makes them uh, function better as a unit, which is a huge part of human. That that's the reason humans, Homo sapiens, beat out other cultures is because of our capacity to you know it's, it's it, right now in, in in American culture tribalism is considered a real negative thing but it was kind of the thing that allowed us to survive and everybody's been to a pub and enjoyed sitting down next to somebody at the bar and just striking up a conversation gets why beer is so cool and it goes back way 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 so back then 10000
3: BC after a few beers they created high fives that's right <laughs> that's right
4: <laughs> that's that's where i go back you know, yeah that's exactly right I'm it's a like a throwback yeah god is good let's uh Let's have some more beers.
3: But I, I like that story because I, I do feel that I think that wine has gotten so much, and this is a beer, so we know. But for so long, there were wine writers, and wine got so much press. And I think a lot of intellectuals don't take beer seriously. But that's why I like your writing because I feel like that you do take it seriously. So yeah,
4: absolutely, it's. I mean, it's you know when you when you think about a, a, a product that has been or an act, human activity that goes back to so go the Göbekli Tepe. Uh, site was from 10,000 BC, so 12,000 years. Think about anything else humans have been doing for 12,000 years. It's, all, it's basically nothing. Like the, so little of that continuity exists, and yet we were making beer 12,000 years ago. I mean, this is as ancient a thing as we've ever done as humans. So it's, I, yeah, it's inspiring. That's great. Man. I've seen the brewers nod. It I really <laughs> makes me a, makes me happy. But now we got to go back to the Hefeweizen. So, you know, talk about
3: styles. It, it, it is almost refreshing to have. I remember when I opened my first pub, Jimmy's number 43 in 2005 when there were only four breweries in New York City. I always had, of 12 taps, I had two lines that were wheat. One was a Hefeweizen from Germany and one was some type of Belgian wit beer. Yeah. And then, After a few years, we got away from it. I know Brett, Brett, and Jeff, you know, knew my tap lines, but we got away from it. We were trying all the new breweries. You know, there were so many different styles. But coming back to it, I feel that like to me, a Hefeweizen is almost an essential style that every bar should have. I don't know what 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 you guys think, or if you're making any of these in New York. (laughs) We have we at Fifth
1: Hammer. We had one a few a couple months ago. We made one in the middle of winter. That's the mind of Chris. Excuse me. Uh, and then, and then, and then we uh, we had a, a best of show or or a brewer's choice from a homebrew competition, uh, um, and we had that brewer in, and we have that one on now. I should have brought it. I really, I really messed up. Uh-huh. That's right.
3: And what about you, Jeff? Kag and Lairn, because you guys do more things like loggers and and Kulsh's that I've had.
5: Yeah, we do. We do loads of classic styles, traditional styles. But I have to be a hundred percent honest that. Of all the styles out there, I'm I'm not intimidated by long-term, barrel age, mixed fermentation, sours, anything you throw at me, but to really make a good Hef is probably one of the pinnacles, and I've just deferred to this point. It's something that I have in my heart that one day I will tackle, but it's the only thing I haven't so yet.
3: This is what it comes to. Is like I can stand making an alt beer. I can see making a dark beer.
4: How did they make a good Hefeweizen, and how did that hit? That's the big question. There's a really cool story here. Uh, uh, Rob Widmer is the younger of the two brothers, and he was really – so Kurt was the master brewer and kind of the – he became the president. I think CEO was not the title he had, but um, Rob's kind of burning passion for 35 years was making a better pint of Widmer Hefeweizen, Hefeweizen. He that was his that was his thing. And he still to this day, well, he's on the Pacific Crest Trail right now hiking it and that'll that'll take him six months. But to this day, he still homebrews this beer. Does that go beer. back ten thousand years
3: where they Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had mean this, beer first.
4: this style is uh is pretty <laughs> elemental. But yeah, he still homebrews this beer because he's still interested in trying to perfect this beer. And that and the fact that he was there the whole time trying to perfect this beer and always like Bird dogging, they would move to a new brewing system, get hire new people. He's always like, he's the guy who's, who's trying to keep this beer focused and as perfect as possible. Did, did
3: he tell you c- certain major steps that he did along the way with that beer?
4: I mean, it was incremental. This is the great thing about beer, right? You you uh, you do a thing a thousand times, and you know you're pretty good at it. I mean, it, it, if you, I always look at the uh, the monastic brewers of Belgium. Their beers are not that complex. They're not that uh, you know. They don't use anything wild or, or funky, but they've made those beers for fifty, sixty years. And if you're a, if you're paying a, that close attention to a beer and you make it over and over and over again, you make subtle, subtle, subtle changes, and uh, eventually you 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 know you can kind of perfect it to the extent that perfection is possible. Jeff
3: Lyons, Keg and w- Why are you afraid? Or have not made a half of Weizen yet.
5: Uh I don't think it's fear as much as reverence and it's just the understanding that once once I take the first step, like like Jeff just explained, that's that's a lifelong journey. You you're not gonna stop. I'm never gonna feel like that beer is where I exactly want it to be. It's always could be made better. And that's cool. I look forward to that. But I just haven't taken that jump yet, just knowing how long that path ahead of me is from step one to the day I go into the grave. Yeah. Do you have a
4: beer that you do? Uh, have you, you? Most brewers have a passion project they've been perfecting. You, do you have one?
5: I, I can't say that I have one. Uh, I certainly have a, some styles that I really gravitate towards and, yeah. and continue to revisit and try to push forward, but... Yeah, it's it's not one like like this story. Yeah, but what wh- Why was it Heppervise? And I still because for
3: me back in two thousand and five, to me that was like the easy beer. People liked it, you know. Y- you drank it easily. But why is there reverence for it? Like, why was that such? a... Why is it such a challenge? I mean,
4: you know, here's the thing. It's about not beer. like a
3: like a Berliner Weisse or a new brewery you can knock it out
4: fast. The thing about beer is uh, subtlety is hard, uh, intensity is easy, and and. As people go through this evolution as drinkers, they they start out from a simple place and they think, okay, I like, I like this simple beer. And then you give them something a little bit challenging, and they think, oh, this has a whole flavor palette that I was not aware of. This is so interesting. And if they get interested in beer, they usually begin to pursue the more dramatic beers and, and go through this whole period where they're drinking big stouts and sours and complex wild beers. But then eventually... For for a lot of people who continue their beer journey, they start to kind of come back around and they taste a good Helles or a good uh, Kolsch, like we're drinking right now. Shout out. This is, this is the kind of beer that um, has very few elements. You're talking about one or two malts, one or two hops. Uh, it's all process. It's all consistency. It's all dialing it in. And when you have a simple beer that makes your heart sing, you think, oh, man, This is something. This is something special. And so I think people come back to these simple beers and it's like, okay, if I'm going to have transcendence in in a drinking experience, it's probably going to be with one of these very, very, very simple beers that's executed perfectly.
3: And again, uh, Jeff, you just smelled that beer and you figured it out exactly, right? (laughs) (laughs) What is this beer? How did you even know it was a Kolsch? Jeff Lyons, this is your beer, right? (laughs) Kagan Lantern. How did he know it was a Kolsch?
5: Is it a Kolsch? Well, I... I, I hope he read it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> he can just smell it and he knows it, you know. But uh, you know, I I I come from a place much like Jeff was saying. So Keg and lantern colch is our. Next yep. Brewery. About about you know the early American craft brewers or or how many many of us start even today, and that you know I've been to Germany, but I haven't been in the past like twenty years. I haven't been when I've gone to drink and like really take these beers in. And I've never been to Belgium, but I'm love sours. Like I love making beers like that. And you just kind of, you read, you jump in, and you just, you make what you make, and you like what you like, and then you try to move it forward, yep. just based on what you know, the little bit that you know, or the little bit that comes your way that you you can taste these classic examples. And, and to me, it's more about sort of what we've talked about on previous shows about going through the BJCP class in your in your second room and. Talking about these classic styles, tasting some of them and then just deciding, hey, I want to brew this and, and give it a go. And then just sort of like we were talking about with the Hef, it's just a lifelong you know progression of trying to make it incrementally better each time. Yeah, simple beers. There's something really um,
4: really satisfying. And, and, and if you talk to brewers, and this is the thing, like beer geeks, they love the, the lactose uh, milkshake IPAs, they love the uh, pastry stouts, they love intensity. But if you talk to brewers and that's great and then those beers you know they are just as everybody's accomplished as a good kolsch uh, and especially the ones that are really 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 good are are uh, they're pushing they're pushing the boundaries of beer so i don't want to denigrate them at all but if you talk to brewers brewers uh, when you just get them by themselves and you're ordering a beer, they'll almost always go for the, the Hellas, the Pilsner, the Kolsch, the very simple beers because they're looking for that those simple pleasures uh, that, that can come from an incredibly executed beer, well-executed beer.
3: Um, I, w- I want to ask one more question, Jeff, from your book. Um, there was a You're talking about the term craft beer. So craft beer has uh, changed a lot by definition, yeah. but it, in your book back in the 80s, it was considered like a traditional beer and now it's kind of about the ownership stake in the company.
4: Yeah, it's really funny, like there was this kind of general sense of morality that came with this concept because there was big beer, right, which they controlled basically the whole the whole channel. They controlled the production, the distribution and the, the retail sales, even though they weren't supposed to. They had all this kind of power to to limit small breweries. And so there was this sense in the eighties uh, and early nineties that, that somehow the little brewers were bringing something important back to beer. They were bringing handcrafted quality. They were bringing in uh, a focus, all this stuff that I've just been talking about, about simple beers, this kind of like real fidelity to good beer. And then people tried to define that. It was difficult to come up with, is that traditional? Is it innovative? Is it quality? Is it variety? It's, all these things were thrown into the hopper, and it was very difficult to come up with a definition that suited all these different breweries that are doing different things. So you have some breweries that are making like super traditional uh, Bavarian lagers, right? Well, they're a craft brewery. But then you have these other guys, and they're making super crazy like hot bombs that are using crazy innovative techniques. And that seems pretty craft too. And then what happens if? That second brewery is uh, sells fifteen percent to private equity. Does that change their beer? Do, should we? Can we taste the difference? Like, it became very confusing very fast.
3: Yeah. And our guys, uh, Brett, uh, do you want to say anything about brewing process or craft beer definition? Oh. Uh, Was there something you were you were sitting there nodding your head? No, I no. I just, drinking I, Jeff yeah, Lyons beer.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the definition of craft. There's craft. There's craft-ish. There's crafty, uh, which is craft with a K. like American <laughs> cheese. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, but that's uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, so we don't really go into um, the that that football team too much on this uh, uh, when I'm around. Whatever. Uh, um, no, I, I, I mean craft is a difficult thing because because there you know uh, there there are amazing breweries who who are completely owned by by multinational corporations who are who like they they make a, a absolutely perfect, you know, craft beer. Um So how, how you know then it, then you get in you just get into this, like what what do these things mean? Um, and and the words don't seem to mean the same thing anymore because people people uh, recognize a word they say craft and that means a beer that's not a light lager.
3: Um, yeah. And it used to be a micro. I mean that's another reason to read yeah. your book, The Whitmer yeah. Way, because it's pretty great where you. Talk about used to be microbreweries and, and there were small brew pubs. And uh, there's definitely like a, a lot of our craft breweries that we like are really big now, too. So
4: And it was really relevant to this story because at a certain point, the Brewers Association had to decide are we going to allow the Widmer brothers, who have uh, like uh, 32% uh, ownership of uh, Anheuser-Busch, had purchased like 32% of the brewery at that point, and... Uh, the Brewers Association got together and said, well, we got to draw a line here. It seems like you're a craft brewery. If another brewery that owns you owns a lot, you know, a certain am- amount, like 10 percent's okay. 90 percent's not okay. Where are we going to draw that line? And they decided to draw that line at 25%, which meant that Widmer brothers was out of the club. They were no longer considered a craft brewery, even though nothing, of course, it, the brewery itself had changed. It was, it continued to be made just the same way. Um, and it caused a lot of bad blood uh you know in the industry among among uh, Robin Kurt and and other friends it like um it was it was kind of a, a, a it was one of those moments of maturity when so this happened in 1996 uh that the uh, AB bought uh, the brewery and i think it was about a decade later that the the definition came out and everybody had to you know kind of acknowledge there's a lot of money at stake there's these things matter and we can't just be loose and free we have to define these things but it means you know sending some people out of the club and uh you know making making tough calls and it it was it was a challenging and and tough time and rob and kurt when they were talking about it they actually understood the other side but they felt like uh they kind of got a rotted deal
3: so you really hung out with these guys how much time did you spend with them rob and kurt woodmer writing this book
4: I did four interviews of about two hours each. And then I did what I always do with brewers, which is I said, take me around your brewery and we'll talk. Because if you put a, if you, and I encourage everybody who's listening to this, if you know a brewer, ask to go on a tour. Because if you're walking around a brewery and you say, what's that? What's that do? Oh, oh, uh, that, th- that mash tun, do you use step mashing or do you do single infusion mashing? You just start asking questions and all of a sudden stuff pours out of them that would never occur to them to mention if you're sitting in an interview room like we had done for eight hours. And so the last uh, hour and a half that I spent touring the brewer with, brewery with them, I got a lot of great stuff that I had not gotten before.
3: Uh, and a last question for Jeff, anybody? Uh, questions about the book, about his writings... If not, it's okay. It was, come on, it, Brett. <laughs> it would come across as a
1: uh, as a as a print journalism question, which would be multifaceted and not 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 sufficient for radio because it would be rambling. So I'm struggling. Go, man. Rambling. Go. On. Saying, I, I can do it. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Just
4: like, you can wait, ask please. it. I'll I'll answer it quickly.
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I'm I'm uh, I'm so sorry, I'm cons- I'm opening a brewery in Brooklyn called <laughs> Wild East. This is <laughs> <a> Brett. <brewery> speaking <laughs> for Brett. I'm, there you I'm are. <laughs> we're considering doing. This and what do you think of it? No, <laughs> an extensive, ba- extensive barrel aging program and a lot of uh primary fermentation with bertanomyces.
4: Nice. So, yeah. is
3: that of interest to you? And who, who's doing that in Portland? Is anyone doing uh, a-
4: yeah, yeah. We have, I mean, this is a great thing about Portland that people don't get because everyone assumes that it's all uh, it's all IPAs, but you know, we have three or four breweries that focus on German styles and, and lagers, and we have uh, two or three breweries that focus on wild. Beers. Um, I was actually last week. I visited Little Beast, which is kind of a new brewery, and they do all wild culture. And they have, I mean, this is what that that process that I talked about earlier, where people talk to each other. You know, it used to be that a wild beer was I threw Brett, I threw one strain of Brett in a beer, and then it's wild. And uh, now Chuck Porter at uh, Little Beast, he's using uh, in a beer, he'll use three strains of Brett. He'll use a couple of uh, lacto or PDO, he'll use uh, different sac strains and he even had he even named some weird yeast that i'd never heard of which does not conform to sac or bread. it's some other peaky inti- what is it probably peaky. could hey could be i yeah. don't know it was some random other thing so, so i've
1: actually had all those beers because my partner business partner uh lindsey steen has been been there and she went she went to like all, so you the, went to little all beast. the little beasts into uh people humans and wolves or uh, wolves, and wolves, and wolves, and wolves and people wolves and people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. like i have i have a bunch of those in my fridge
4: yeah it's 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 i mean you know you get you get radically different character when you start using a whole bunch of different microflora or fauna or whatever fungus is and uh and bacteria i don't know sorry i've, I've wandered into a uh, language problem here but any but anyway you know this is it, but you, know, you, you came you on the show, people. Jeff, and
3: guess what? You turned me back on to Vites. There so, you go. <laughs> That's, you know, I feel right? like uh, I'm, I'm appreciating beer in a new way these days. I'm, I'm liking my malt forward beers. I'm liking my Hellas. I'm liking my Hefeweizen. And so great show, guys. Um, does everyone please go around the room and just say your name and, and who you work for, and we're going to sign off, all right?
4: All right, Jeff Allworth. I write about beer. Did you write a book? <laughs> I, I, I Sometimes write, I write books. Whitmer way. Kyle Mallory, <laughs> Sasquatch Agency, PR guy.
3: And you're repping the book? What's it called again? Repping the book, Widmer Way. Widmer Way, yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah, Stephen Hallstone with Widmer Brothers. Uh, Manage the marketing here for the book, but really here to drink.
3: Thanks for coming out, man.
1: Brad Taylor, Wild East Brewing Company, for Thamber Brewing Company. Um, I just make beer and am in the process of
5: opening a brewery. So He's
3: another know. one of those brewing geniuses, man. We love you, bro. <laughs> Absolutely.
5: Uh, Jeff Lyons, I work at Kagan Lantern uh, Brewing Company. Thank, thanks for bringing the beer. Thanks for writing the book. Thanks for thanks for having us all out.
3: Now You, you guys may on my show. Thanks so much. is part of what we do, we bring together the beer community. And to us, Jeff, you're a, an important writer, and uh, we want you to meet some of the, the New York City brewers that are making a difference. So thanks for joining us. Big shout-out to our producer, Justin Kennedy, engineer Matt Patterson, assistant producer Aliyah Papes. I remember everyone's name. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo.
2: Right. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.